Welcome, this is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith, and what don't I like about horror movies? <laughs> Laura, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's an easier, <laughs> easier uh, approach. Horror's the jam, and uh, I, I, that's all I'm going to say for this episode. Because <laughs> we've talked enough. <laughs> yes, probably, maybe, Yes. I'm Laura Patterson. Uh, Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And horror is great because horror, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, can either reinforce or challenge problematic societal stereotypes. And here is a great example of horror doing what I love to see it do, which is challenge a lot of problematic stereotypes and do it really, really well. Absolutely. And for this episode, we watched the 2019 film, We Summon the Darkness. And according to IMDb, the film is about three best friends embark on a road trip to a heavy metal show where they bond with three aspiring musicians and head off to one of the girls' country home for an after party. Which, yay, it's a synopsis on IMDb that isn't, doesn't include massive spoilers. <laughs> Good job, whoever wrote that film is directed by mark myers and written by alan treza and our entire catalog of episodes is available for free on our website collectingnightmares.com you found us we hope you keep finding us like us like it subscribe to us we put out new episodes every thursday mostly ish as much as possible we are still working people and it's and we do the best we can we appreciate you joining us you can find us on Instagram at Collective Nightmares. Get in touch. Let us know what you think. Spoilers in this episode for Audition. Oh, poor Audition. <laughs> oh, audition who is spoiled on a monthly basis, <laughs> at least. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes. Uh, and we uh, spo- spoiled something else. Dang, there's something else we spoiled. We spoiled this film. We strongly recommend you watch the film before you listen to us. Get the full impact of the movie before you, before you give us a listen. And I'll say too, just as lead into this episode, that this film is a, an example of a case where Marshall and I, our, our first opinions of the film really evolved over the course of our discussion. And so I would hang in there with the discussion because we start off a little unsure how much we liked it. And by the end, we've sorted through some things and, and feel a bit differently. So uh, more so than most times, I would say that our initial impression kind of evolved over the course of, of talking about this film. Dang it. You don't think there was something else we spoiled? We talked about Alien, but not in a spoily kind of way. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. That's probably what I'm thinking of. Okay, let's rock and roll. Or even more to the point of the film, let's rock and fucking roll. Love it, Marshall. Love it. That worked out so well. So uh, I will ask again, ye of no free time, how'd you... uh, How'd you come to watch a a film for leisure? My son went to bed at six o'clock one night 
which is actually too early. Usually I'm too tired when he goes to sleep and I just go to sleep basically with him or, you know, half an hour later once I brush my teeth. But I didn't want to go to bed at 6.30. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, what could I do possibly with this time? I have no idea what this means to have free time. And so I decided to watch a movie not for the podcast, which was actually a sort of painful experience, Marshall. I have to say I feel badly for you now that you've been watching things still without me because it's sad and it's difficult. And the whole time I'm talking to you in my head and I'm thinking about what I would say to you if you were there and then I'm missing you. <laughs> it's like, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's like going through some kind of bad breakup or something. I just, I don't want to do it without you there. Um, I feel that. So it was, it was fun, but also a little sad. And by the time I got to the end of it, I actually had some things that I really thought would be worthwhile discussing on the podcast. And so I'm glad that you decided you wanted to do the film. And now I don't have to have gone through that experience alone. It's like, it was like the fake breakup. You know, it's like when you think you broke up and you're like super depressed about it. And then next week you forgot about that. And it's like a distant memory. I feel like I'm in that phase. Well, I appreciate that. I do feel that because I do, there are films. And I think I've done this with you too, where I've watched something and I've been like, oh, this would be really good to do the podcast about. I would not have chosen this film even after having seen it. But given that, given especially we're still at the start of the semester and everything else that you've been dealing with, if it saved you an hour and a half on another end, I sure. And it wasn't just a totally nothing film. It was something you said you felt like you had things to say about it or that would provoke discussion. So I'm, I'm more than happy to, to take something on that's a wild card. Yeah. No, I'm going to say that I think this actually is going to contribute to a discussion we've been having for a while in ways that are really interesting. At least that's my hope. That's my hope for this conversation. So I'm excited. Great. Actually. Yeah. Should we just do general thoughts? Did sure. You enjoy yeah. it? Let's do it. Yeah. Go for it. I enjoyed the film. I felt like it was a fairly lighthearted kind of horror film. I appreciated some of the pretty dark humor I don't know that they were ever, I don't know that they were ever really trying to scare us or horrify us. It was the conventions of the horror genre, but it didn't take itself super seriously. I don't think, even though it did have, I mean, it's funny to have a film that I say that about and the film be about religion. (laughs) And uh, the exploitation of a religion and all that. So, nonetheless, I, I enjoyed it. Um, like I said, for whatever reason, I've... Whatever reason, I guess, because I don't have a kid or a ex-husband. <laughs> so I've, <laughs> I, or, or somebody to date right now. So I've got lots of free time. So what I do is I sit and poke around IMDb looking for things to watch. and And I've been editing funny games and just posted Eden Lake and there was something else I guess coming off of, of Zach Parker's I right now, particularly from what you've said there, there are other films I would have chosen in particular the man bites dog. I'm really curious about that film now, like super curious about it. And anyway, but this was fun. It was, it was, I thought it was a very fun horror movie. It wasn't, maybe we can sort some things out with it. Um, cause I, I didn't think through it too much, which is kind of ironic cause I did know I was going to do the podcast on it, but, uh, but I'm very curious to hear what you have to say. 
I, I think I'm going to be able to get us on an interesting tack here. Um, but I want to start with like, not the big ideological question or issue or, or whatever that I think it raised. And just start by saying, I agree with you in general on your take on the film. I, I would say what I find interesting about the film is more so a reflection of society, the society that it came from, I think more than something that was intentionally done by the makers of the film. And that's super interesting in terms of what it says about our society, but makes the film itself hold a little bit less water. I, you know, I don't want to quite, I don't want to hold that up in too high esteem. I thought it was okay. I enjoyed it for a, yeah, I had a couple hours and wanted to watch something and it was sort of fun kind of experience, but okay. It it particularly resonated with me because it took place in like the eighties metal scene. And that was the reason I decided I wanted to watch it because I grew up in Cleveland and let's see, I graduated high school in 1997. So the 80s metal scene was still going strong in, in 1997 in Cleveland. And it's actually still kind of, it's much more alive there than it is any place else, else I've lived. And I still have friends who like go to metal concerts and whatever. Cause, and cause so who all, who all came out of Cleveland? The Breeders came out of Cleveland. Uh, Mushroom Head. <laughs> okay, Sure. There's at least one or at least two other like major metal bands that came out of Cleveland or like alt metal. I don't know. You don't know the what, Cleveland? No. You, I, so, you don't know the Cleveland metal scene? Not since 1997. And actually, no, honestly, I would say then not so much the Cleveland metal scene, more so all the references, the little references they were dropping in this film about like, oh, is, you know, is Metallica going to be better now that Dave Mustaine left or whatever? Those are all the very standard the checklist of like Randy Rhodes and whatever that they were saying, they like the five pieces of knowledge that I had in high school, because you had to have them if you like this kind of music, were all in this film. And that was fun. And I appreciated that because I don't know, it was a throwback to, okay, I guess I'll say it this way. It was a throwback to like experiences I had in high school. And that was fun in a nostalgic kind of way, but also having a more grown up lens on it and particularly a lens that we've kind of cultivated in watching these films I was also really depressed. There was like a bittersweet quality to watching that scene because I realized that a lot of my, a lot of my later high school years, I guess, were oriented around that and doing things just like these girls were and going to these concerts and whatever. And, you know, dressing kind of like that and partying with the boys afterwards and, you know, whatever. And it just, it was very, I mean, not like that <laughs> exactly, but, you know. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Just, I'm sorry to get it right. This is, I feel as though I've failed personally in a number of ways. Fucking Nine Inch Nails is from Cleveland. And, oh, really? And that's... Oh, I knew that. I think I knew that. Filter, Cleveland. So, so anyway, I knew somebody else. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I should have known okay. that. I feel... That's okay. And I feel like that's not quite the exact category of the bands that they're no, talking no, no. about here. Definitely but not. Not still. at all. Dio and Ozzy and whatever. Right, yes. (laughs) I helped a friend of mine carve the Ozzy Osbourne logo into his arm with a nail. And I want to know if he still has it. And I I helped him not because I thought it was a good idea, but because he was halfway there because he tried to do it himself. And then he like couldn't quite do it. And some of it was like not deep enough and others of it were. And I was afraid he was going to end up with something even worse than having an actual Ozzy scarred into his arm, which would be like half an Ozzy, which... I think would be worse. I'm not really sure. Oz. <laughs> anyway, Ozzy Osbourne also totally wore my bra. I had really good aim. 
<laughs> he just caught it and put it right on. But, but okay, I say all these things to say that it was depressing watching this film because I realized how much of my sense of self and worth and whatever in those late high school years was like directed in this scene. And in knowing those facts I was supposed to know about those bands, in trying to gain the approval of the guys who were in that scene, and just how looking at it from this vantage point of being older and I guess just, I don't know, more experienced, it just, it looked like such a pile of patriarchal bullshit, you know? <laughs> it's like, like, let's just dress whatever and drink a whole bunch and just play right into what the guys want. And go love these bands where it's all about like half the songs are about you doing exactly that and like just be a pawn and fall right into it and you know feel like that's how you're getting your status and how you're getting your worth and this was what makes you likable and i i resented all the energy that i put into that because now looking back on that i had a list i had a list at the time of like i got a scorpion's drumstick and i got you know joey holmes guitar pick and like whatever and ozzy wore my bra and i got kicked out of an iron maiden concert for crowd surfing and like just you know my, my set of like this is what makes me I, I elevate myself in this realm that like doesn't matter at all and i know this happens to everybody as you get older but i wish i could go back and put just some of that energy into something that actually has to do with like building my actual self and things that matter and not just, I just drank the Kool-Aid, you know? And I mean, I was young, it was high school, whatever, but I just drank the Kool-Aid straight down. So I guess that it was fun and it was nostalgic and it was depressing at the same time. And I loved it then when the film took the turn, you know, for the first third, whatever, before the women kind of take over at the party and you realize that they're there to kill the guys. I thought this was just going to be a standard horror film, probably in the same, the same direction as like the 80s slashers where the women in the film, you know, in the horror genre, there are plenty of examples of women playing exactly that same role that I'm complaining about in this metal scene. You're there as, you're there to look good and you're there to be fun for the men, but the show's being run by the men and you're going to do what the men want to see. And, you know, if you think you enjoy that or you get some benefit out of it, it's just because you're buying into the argument. Like that's, that's true of a lot of the horror genre also. And so it, it, that felt depressing too, I guess. Like, oh, we're back into like 80 slasher world where the women are just there to be looked at and pretty and probably get hunted down or whatever it is. And when it took a turn and that didn't happen, somehow the combination of the experience of watching this scene from my high school years play out and then seeing the women actually be the important role and not just be, you know, they didn't invite these guys to the house. Like, I was just cringing for them thinking like, I could totally see falling into this position. Like, oh, now we're going to do a house party and we're going to invite these guys back. And when one of the guys said something like, what makes us so you know, lucky that we get to be here or whatever, I was like, yeah, exactly. Like, he didn't do anything. You don't deserve any of this. Like, I'm just so mad at them for like all of this energy, like I said, that I put into trying to be that role. And so when the women went to kill them, I felt some satisfaction in that. Cool. More, more strongly... You know, not just like, oh, it's going to be fun to watch them get killed or whatever, because the guys weren't bad guys for the most part. They were all right. But I felt satisfaction for the world I was living in and for the genre and for the fact that, a, a, I won't say just like crappy horror movie. I don't really mean that to downplay it, but it's just, you know, it was, it was something to watch at six o'clock when I had nothing else to do. For a movie like that and a movie that was going to play around in the same scene that I found to be just so like, patriarchal and now I was like so resentful about 
that's a big change in society, first of all, to have it flip so that the women are in charge. The fact that that would be such a sort of mainstream normal thing to do now, I think actually says something. And I want to take this argument actually a lot farther in another step, but I'll pause right there for now and just say that that was my initial, for the first half of the film, that was my take on it and why I was engaged and also really appreciated the, the flip that they had. Yeah, I, I feel that. I love what you, I love what you said about the guys being like, well, what did I deserve? To, what did I do to deserve to be here? Um, I mean, that's something that flits around on my, my feminist social media accounts. There's such that critique of, or there's such a critique of the trope where just some totally average guy ends up with some incredible woman or some guy gets, gets credit for just not being a total loser (laughs) or a total jerk or, you know, just sort of doing what we expect as the bare minimum in life from other people. (laughs) I assume you're referencing Tucker and Dale, but maybe, maybe. Oh yeah. Oh sure. There you go. Great. Perfect example. Perfect example. I was more interested in it having having uh, having studied moral panics and the the satanic moral panics of that grew in response to the plur- proliferation proliferation of eighties metal music and that's where I was like oh this this could really be interesting I wonder what they're gonna do with it for all the horror movies of that era that included heavy metal music or satanic imagery or whatever. I can't think of another one really that actually dealt with the with the notion of the satanic cult as as like a plot device within the film. I don't know if I'm saying that right. That's part of what's happening in the plot, but it's not like we're aware of it and we're consciously going to use whether or not that that is a socially constructed mechanism for fear and social control in that way. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I have to say, I looked up and uh, Val, I think. Okay, so uh, Alexis is the leader person. Val is her sidekick. Beverly, Bev is the rebel with the boat motor. And the, the guys are Mark, Kovacs, and Ivan. I, I don't know which guy is which but anyway Val is the girl in God Bless America which is still to this one day one of my just absolute favorite satires of American culture for me I put God Bless America up there with like idiocracy and office space I think it's just a phenomenal really dark movie so and she's wonderful in it that was however many years before so I, I didn't even recognize her until She's like 10 or 12, or at least her character is in, the, in that film, maybe 14, maybe 14, maybe start of high school. So here I was, I was just kind of poking around looking at who did what, and I was like, oh, okay. So I was totally into it. Uh, I've also been, I love the moral panics. For those who don't know, moral panics are a, hopefully you can help me with this, Laura. Moral panics are a circumstance where some fear is utilized by a group to leverage social and political power in order to accomplish some 
moderately related goal. So a classic example would be, or, or to scapegoat. So the satanic cults of the eighties were, were studies this phenomenon where basically the rumor that, or the, the idea that heavy metal music was instigating teenagers to join satanic cults and in doing so they were kidnapping kids or killing kids or killing other people or killing animals and using it in rituals and ultimately is that right this ended up in this notion that the people involved were sexually abusing other kids and that those accusations particularly of sexual abuse were really effective in the u.s for criticizing the music and this is these are some of the reasons we have the it's the parental resource music center with uh al gore's wife and uh what's her name tipper gore tipper because who names their kid tipper and it was really it was just basically a conspiracy theory that was fabricated out of nothing and led to congressional hearings and warning labels and I don't know what all the fallout is, but I'm listening to a podcast right now that's about a kidnapping and murder of a kid in Minnesota, some small town in Minnesota. And one of the things that was really detrimental to that investigation was it somehow got attached as maybe this is one of these satanic killings. And it just totally distracted everyone from the actual situation, which is freaking some dude in the next town over had been abusing and killing kids for however long but he was normal quote-unquote nice working class white guy and so that couldn't be him so so that's my long hopefully my law my not too long explanation of of moral panics it's been a long time since i've taught moral panics but a couple of points are are floating up to the surface here one was that i think moral panics the public outrage was considered disproportionate to the actual harm that was happening. And so it was like, whatever, whatever the issue is that's causing people to be concerned, the outrage gets blown way, way out of proportion relative to the harm. And also that moral panics are really volatile. So as in, because I think they're based on such a, and if I'd say whim, like a lack of actual grounding in real substantial harm, they're much more influenced by sort of public perception and media hype about all of this. And so they can arise really quickly. Like it's not like the behavior suddenly starts and then people panic. It's, it could be a behavior that's been ongoing for a while, but suddenly there's a, a moral panic that like flourishes about it. And then it can disappear just as quickly, even when the underlying behavior doesn't necessarily disappear because it's more so based on this public consensus about what could be a problem rather than based on like actual grounding and what's really going on. That's great. It was awesome. I think you maybe should have done the explanation for moral panics. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say is that my understanding is that it almost always involves sexuality, at least in the U.S., because we panic about sex because that's who we are as a culture, and almost always involves kids because kids are the super the save the children are children are like you said just a what is the word? They're useful social status for as innocent victims that can't protect themselves. And therefore we, whoever that we is needs to step in and respond, which we're at least many people are willing to do if it's satanic cults, but not so willing to do if we want to provide pre-kindergarten for everyone in America. (laughs) 
I think when I it mean, comes that to demonstrates issues, it, right? I, I know I've, I've always got to get my political thing in, right? But I demonstrates it, like you're saying, disproportionately, like, let's panic, let's do all these hearings and everything if we think some kids are being sexually abused in some satanic cult. But if we're trying to provide healthcare or, like I said, pre-kindergarten or something for kids, just because that would help everyone, literally, then, yeah, I don't know if we could do that. I don't know if we have the money. And that's part of what it makes it a moral panic is is when people panic, they panic as just society, just as an individual, they start, well, we got to do something, even if that something isn't effective or really a good idea or all that. Sorry, please. Yeah. And that was, I think, one of the characteristics of moral panics too, that there's almost always political action or some sort of large scale action to address it, whether that ends up changing anything or not. I was going to say fixing, but fixing might be the wrong word because there may not even have been a problem to start with. But regardless of impact, there usually is some sort of political thing that happens. I also wanted to say on the topic of kids, I think kids, when you're talking about moral issues, kids are a really good representation of the future of the culture. And so when, when a threat is coming for some sort of like xenophobic reason, that's really, kids are a really good symbol of that because it's like our future as a culture is now going to be challenged by this other culture that's we're being allowed to be okay when it's really not and it's really wrong and it needs to be stopped. And I think that's the big difference why people don't want to fund early childhood education. Yes, that's a threat to kids, but that's not a threat to our future as a culture and our cultural identity. The way, and I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, it kind of is, but like, I, I, it's I, I, not I in the same way. Right. It's not like impeding of other like scary othered viewpoints that are going to like, you know, infiltrate our children and turn our culture into something else. Right. So my I hopefully that digression was was worth it. I found that very interesting. I like the actors uh, and you had suggested it. And that's more than enough for me. And uh, I enjoyed it. And then when they got into the prosperity gospel preacher one that should dovetail or maybe we can bring in some of our discussion of red state and two i was like okay now i'm very interested and i think what i texted you laura you know i'm still still try not to but i still struggle with being able to actually focus on anything for any amount of time as depressing as that is but i texted laura as i was watching it i was like okay this gets interesting and i think it was right when they drugged him at the fire and like you said started to turn the tables and somewhere or something in there had, yeah, the, the preacher for, cause doesn't she say that? Doesn't Alexa say that pretty early on when they have them tied up and they basically reveal that they're doing this to promote the, the Christian teachings or these are basically sacrificial lambs to demonstrate to the other sinners that, this is what happens when you do the bad things of going to a concert and listening to the music. <laughs> anyway, I think that was what I texted. I was like, okay, now, um, now I've bought in. Now I'm very curious. And yeah, that, that's good. It, yeah, there's, there's definitely some meat, some meat on the bone there, if you will. So I think you're totally right that somehow some comparisons between this and red state are going to be very appropriate. I would like, if you'll let me to take this, another direction just for a a moment here. And I hope I can pull this off because it's all the pieces are floating around in my head. I'm not sure they're going to come out in one coherent lump, but hopefully you can help me sort through this. So I want to (laughs) reference one of our, one of our terrible losses that at the time didn't seem so substantial, but now I have to say I, this comes up every third week audition again, 
Okay. And the audition argument, again, that I'll just throw out there because I want to comment on it with this film, was in audition, we had clear indicators in the film that this was a film that was in, how do I want to say this? I don't know if I want to use the word addressing, but it was, it was operating in a world where gender inequality was a concern for people. And this was something that was, you know, we were given signposts throughout the film that this was an important issue in this world that the film was based in. And in that world, then, the story they chose to tell was actually a story where a woman is a perpetrator and the man is the victim. And Marshall and I talked a lot in that podcast that sadly got lost about whether this was okay or not. And can you, on the one hand, you'd want to say, well, in a world where there is oppression along whatever lines, you would want to think that the people who are oppressed shouldn't always have to be, shouldn't always just have to stand up as examples of their oppressed status. And so sure, you, you should be able to have a film where a woman can be the villain. And that's not, that shouldn't be a problem. Like what, that's horrible to like pigeonhole her as she has to represent, you know, she has to always be good or she has to always be showing that her status, you know, isn't deserved. But at the same time, when you have a film that's addressing gender inequality, which I think this film was, audition was, right, then if you set up a dynamic where what you actually find is that the, the man, the person with power in that situation is actually being wronged by a woman, by someone with less power, the sort of overall ideological argument that you're making seems to be that maybe the, the feminist perspective in this situation is, is hurting men or is ill-founded or men aren't really that bad because look, this man is being tortured by a woman. And so it gets a little bit tricky. And in audition, we ended up deciding, I believe that it actually wasn't a good call on their part and that it really did potentially promote some problematic ideas by flipping the tables there and, and not showing the woman as, as someone who is more likely to be experiencing harm from the man than the other way around. But I, I bring that up because in this film, I thought it was really noticeable that for the first part of the film, there were some signposts there, not as many as audition, but there were signposts there to show that gender relations were something they were discussing in this film, at least a little bit. There were nods to it. There were the man right at the beginning who's staring at, um, who was it? Val, maybe it was. All right, the, the, even the man at the counter in the store, you know, there were definite indications that that was on the radar you know, on the ideological radar of the people who are making this film. And I think it was interesting then when the tables turned because now the women were in charge, right? But how do I say this? So we might have a situation similar to something like Audition here, where suddenly the women are the perpetrators. We're living in a world where gender inequality is being discussed and the women are the perpetrators and the men are the victims and they're trying to get away from the women. But what I thought made this film stand out as opposed to audition is that in this case, the women, when, when the tables turned and the women became in charge, they were not in charge as women who were unfairly, I guess you could say, persecuting these men because they thought the men were, for reasons related to patriarchy, that those poor men didn't actually do themselves and how terrible the men are the victims. It wasn't that. They, when the tables turned and the women were in charge, they were representatives of religion of this totally other institution that the film was critiquing. And I thought that was a super interesting thing to see in a film because to me, what that showed me was that the women in this film were not being forced to be representatives of their status. You know, they didn't have to represent, status. yeah, of their gender status. They didn't have to represent women, right? In a world where, where 
patriarchal relationships has, have been acknowledged clearly in the film, the women were able to step out of the role of representatives of womanhood against man. And it became, yeah, the women are in charge against the men, but the women are now representing this other institution that is not directly related to the gender relations. And that felt like a, an accomplishment. And I don't necessarily mean that the film intended to do it. I, I don't know that I'm saying, I think the, the makers of the film crafted this really great argument to make a point, but it felt like an accomplishment societally speaking, because I think when you look at these films as a mirror on society, what I saw in that was, I guess, along with the distinction I was making at the beginning about how like cool, it's not a slasher film. Like we're not living in this world anymore where that's all the women are going to be. I think also we're not living in a world anymore where a mainstream film has to have women just be representatives of their status as women as opposed to men. They can actually represent some other institution. And that felt like progress to me. I don't know if that was clear, but did that somewhat come together? I think so. Let's see if I can, I can say it back to you as a check or confirmation of, of if I understood it. I appreciate why you were having, uh, that was a lot to pull together. Okay, let me start at the end and work backwards. So Alexis and, and Val and Bev, till she does her own thing or whatever, are women who are attached to religion and organized this particular organized religion of prosperity gospel and, and exploitative TV ministers, basically. And that status and their representation as, or their being representatives of that particular religious institution is more salient throughout the film than their gender. And in a genre and in a, well, in a genre where gender is and has been so historically the much more significant status orientation. It seems like either progress or at least an anomaly to have a film where gender is a secondary concern to anything else in this case, religion. Yes. And I'm trying to think, can you think of another horror film where women are enacting violence on men for reasons that aren't related to patriarchy and women's overall societal status as being lower than men? I mean, rape revenge films, certainly, but that all falls into that category, right? Yeah, which is, part, yeah, uh, I think part of the reason that that we have, well, part of the reason for my screenplay is, is to tr also try and get out of the only motivations we have for women in horror, like you've said, are vengeance for sexual assault and and being the final girl. But even beyond sexual assault, I'll say like even in your screenplay, and this isn't a critique, it's an observation of the artistic landscape that we're assessing here, still the women are representatives of women as opposed to men and enacting violence on men who like deserve it because they're treating women poorly. So it's like women's sort of subordinate status, if you want to call it that as women, which motivates their, their violence. And I can't think of another example of a film where women are enacting violence on men, but it's not their status as women that is motivating the violence. It's some other thing as though they're just people who can have a tie to an institution in a way that's not gender related? I can't off the top of my head. I think it's a wonderful and interesting question. Ooh, and that actually makes me think of another 
So women as not representative of gender first. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and can I throw out one more little nuance into this? It's yeah. short. Yeah, please. I think it's even more interesting in this film because this film was living in a world where they were addressing gender inequality. I mean, certainly I think the beginning of the film, there, there was there were unwanted sexual gazes from men that were lingered on in a way that were noticeable. And I think it's really interesting in the same vein that when I can't, I don't know, I can't tell the guys apart, which is another probably credit to the argument that I'm making here. But the guy with the black hair, when he comes out of the little room that he and his friend were locked in when they were trying to escape the, the women and the policeman's there, right? And he comes out and the policeman's like, stop, hey, come on, you know, put your hands, whatever. And the guy says, hey, the, they're trying to kill us. My friend and I, we're stuck in the whatever, we're the victims. And the cop, I think, explicitly says something, like he repeats the guy's line back to him, like the women were trying to hurt you. Or, you know, it's like, like and it's, it's the fact that the cop gets hung up on that, that that's when he gets killed, which is interesting. So had he not gotten, had he not stumbled over the fact that the women were the villains, he could have acted appropriately. And certainly in that case, in real life, or real life movie, real life, every other film that I can think of, right? If women came out of a, a room in a closet and were, ah, we're help us, these guys or whatever, I don't think the cop would be like, hands against the wall, you're, the cop would say, oh no, come here, let me, let me protect you and save you because it's not even a question that the men would be enacting the violence and the women wouldn't. So the fact that the cop repeats that and gets killed specifically because he gets hung up on that point points out to me that again, gender issues, they're there in the film. It's not that they're not there, but they're not the primary motivator behind the women. And I think that's really fascinating. And I don't think we've seen it ever. I don't even know if it was the intent of the filmmakers. The one thing that makes me think it could possibly have been is that scene where the cop gets killed, because I think it's very interesting that that's what gets him killed. But if it's not, it's a really interesting reflection of society. I agree with everything you're saying. And I think it's really interesting. It didn't for reasons that sometimes baffle or often baffle me about myself, I don't know why I didn't clue that in. Because you're right, they are they are women who are surrounded by men and surrounded by men who are representative of patriarchal institution, business, shopkeeper, family, voyeur at the gas pump, cultural heavy metal. Or, or just in terms of the band uh, and what you were saying, Alexis's father, literal patriarchy and the church, culture, religion, economy, family. I mean, there's your, there's your big four of patriarchy. <laughs> uh, and yet you're right. They, they very much don't, they very much feel like, I'll say this a different way which may be problematic, but whatever, just as a thought thing is we could have traded the women for men and the movie wouldn't have been a whole lot different, particularly in how it felt and how people were acting big picture. We could have traded a lot of genders here and it really wouldn't have shifted or would it have. And I tend to agree with you that I agree with you about everything up until the fact that Alexis is actually preacher person's daughter. Oh, oh, I want to address that. Can I address that? Yes. I just want to say one other thing, which is, is the only other woman in the whole film, the stepmom? Cause I think she is 
of any note or anything. Okay. Whatever that means. Exactly. Right. So Alexis is the daughter of the preacher. And so I was going down this whole road in my head and I was really happy with these ideas that were coming to mind. I was like, Oh, cool. This is different. This is interesting. And then you have the scene where the preacher comes into Alex's bedroom and clearly he's the one driving this and and making her do this. And she suddenly falls into this almost like victim role. And I say that not only that she's behaving as a victim, but also that we as the audience are perceiving her as a victim in that scene. We're hearing, oh, well, what did I say to you when you fell off your bike when you were a kid? And, you know, we get this very strong sense that like she's, he's somehow the one in charge and she didn't really cause us or deserve it. Or again, she's a victim and somehow the patriarchy is driving yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And at first I was, I was starting down this road of like, oh, maybe they're not, maybe this, maybe this isn't another example of, maybe this isn't an example of what I want it to be, which is that these women are, are actually representing something outside of their, their gender because now she's just a pawn and he did it. But in that scene, so I'm trying to remember how we get to the transition from the, the father being in the bedroom to Beverly being there. But anyway, Beverly comes in, Beverly confronts Alex and Beverly and Alex starts saying this whole, oh, it was, you know, it wasn't my fault. It was just my dad. You can see it was all my dad that did this. And Beverly very statedly says to Alex, like, no, this is on you. And she stabs Alex. And as soon as she goes for Alex, Alex switches from victim to like autonomous. Okay, you didn't buy it. Fine, I'm going to take over. And I think that gets rid of that argument that if through the viewpoint of the film, it puts Alex back in charge of she made her own decision. She is her own entity. And she, again, is working as a lucid conduit of this religious institution. It's not just her father who's pushing it. The film tells her she deserves it by killing her. The film tells us that she deserves it by having her suddenly snap out of the victim role and, you know, assert that she's, okay, never mind. I really did mean it. And this is me. So I I think that, that, I don't know. I think that addresses that argument, I guess I'd say. Are you still there? You froze up. Hey, that was weird. That was such a terrible timing. I mean, it's never good timing, but I'm right. Okay, so I'm right there with you because my I was was right on the path of I'm on board with everything you're saying, Laura. But Alexis is preacher's daughter, and so does that disrupt all of this argument? And you were saying Alexis is consciously manipulating the victim role to her advantage, and that challenges that argument and so i'm excited to hear the rest of what you have to say is that right yes i I think that's exactly right and i think most importantly for that argument the film the film tells us that alexis deserves it right because we're clearly on the side of beverly 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 is our hero i think so is what's his name with the dark hair but i think the two of them are are the ones who at the end like escape Mark. mark okay So the two of them are the ones that are elevated. And I think their perspective is telling us what's right in this film. And the fact that Beverly explicitly says to Alex, no, this is on you and stabs her. I think we're, we're on board. And I say we, as in the film is right, is meant to put the audience in that place. I think that's also reinforced by the fact that when Beverly's driving away at the end, the car has Alex's hair on the front. And that's sort of a funny, almost like a laugh line. When you see that it's like, it's like the end of a rape revenge film or something, right? Where somebody who deserves it gets it and the violence is just an indicator of the success of whoever it is that won. 
so I think it's really interesting that that women in this film, like I said, were legitimately representatives of something else. And, but they didn't back away from addressing gender inequality in the film, you know, and I'll throw out just a couple more things on that point in closing at the end of the film that Beverly is the one who is kind of in charge, even when it comes to her relationship with Mark, she's got her arm around Mark and she's helping him get to the car and she's like, come on, I got you. You can do this. She's the one who's driving when they drive away and she's clearly in charge. So throughout the film, they address gender issues to the extent that they they very clearly purposefully had women in kind of the dominant role counter to maybe overarching societal expectations. But I think they did one better by actually not then pigeonholing the women and making them only be allowed to be in the film representatives of their gender. They actually made them representatives of something that really didn't have to have them be women. Like you said, as far as the the plot line surrounding the religious piece of this goes, they could just have easily have been men. And so I think that's an accomplishment. And I think that's an accomplishment we haven't seen in many horror films. And I honestly, I, I tend to agree though with what we were saying at the beginning of this. I'm not sure if it, how much of that was intentional. I mean, certainly the addressing the gender issues appears to be intentional because there's stated points throughout the film where the women are elevated. When it comes to allowing them to take on a status outside of their role as women, which I, I just can't think of another example. I mean, rape, revenge, all of these things, when the women are in charge, they're in charge because of their subordinate status as women and they want to get back against men. But where they actually get to represent something totally else, I wonder if that was an intentional step toward, hey, we're going we're gonna to kind of do one better in the direction of elevating the status of women, or if it was honestly just a reflection of the society that we live in that, or at least I won't say overall, but I will say like within this genre, within this art form, that there's space now for women to be treated as, you know, amazingly like whole people who might have a motivation that stands outside of just the fact that they're a woman. They could have a motivation that a man could actually have as well. And that could drive them in a horror film. It's a unique experience. This time when you mentioned that, the two films combined, which are an or- original and a sequel, which would be Alien and Aliens, are maybe an example I can think of where Ripley is, transcends her gender status in the films and is, and in the, in the plural, Vasquez and uh, the pilot. Darn it, I can't think of her name. But anyway, but those are also legendary films, classics, modern classics, and Aliens is 86, I think. So, you know, 96, 2006, so 30-something years old. <laughs> so even if those are additional examples, they are, it's very few and far between. I don't think it it diminishes your argument at all. Does it matter in the Aliens films too, that the men often treat her as though it's surprising that she's competent or it's surprising that she can do something. There, there is a dynamic in the film whereby she's overcoming their expectations. And I don't know if that matters or doesn't matter, but it, it places her ability or her striving after the goal she's striving after still somewhat in the context of the discussion around her status. I don't know if that... Uh- the second one is the one I rewatch much more regularly. The first one, I don't think I could say, but with regard to the skepticism of the second one, I 
I will make the argument that it, their their skepticism about her has much more to do with the fact that she's a civilian and that she's been in hypersleep for 60 years or whatever and it is it is just it's not because of her gender it's uh it, it's because of these other things and so her capability her capabilities or her except for maybe the um except for Paul Reiser as the villain of the film who seeks to i think you could read his his evil as or taking advantage of her gender in order to uh in order for his his personal gain but that would be okay because because it would be him as a villain who's who's actually relying on or is actually operating with her gender more so in mind okay yeah i i don't have a super clear memory of those either i'm i'm thinking of some general stereotyped kind of issues that were floating around in those movies like her mothering the young girl and i can remember explicit scenes where people but maybe this is from the first alien and not even the second where she's critiqued for or not critiqued but like the men are standing back like oh wow she's able to do this <laughs> um, they're vague memories it's been a while actually that's probably what made me think in particular of aliens is that akin to what you're saying here is I don't think they back away from her being a woman. So they don't go the, which is the other, which is the other danger would be to go gender blind, quote unquote, and just pretend that gender isn't a variable, which, which is also problematic. And so very much like you're saying here, there's acknowledgement that there are women and there's acknowledgement that these gender dynamics are happening, but that's not the only or the primary salient feature and that's what i think made me think of aliens where yeah her as a parental and a guide or specifically as a mother who has lost her kid and now discovers newt and takes on a mothering role that's not disregarded it's not ignored she still can do things that are associated with being a woman but she's not defined and constrained by those expectations in a dominant way. And that my understanding is you're saying that that is where this film steps out from the pack of, uh, you know, Omen will not talk about this. If you'll forgive me with race of it is, it is no better to actualize race than it is to disregard it completely. Like you can't, you don't want to say black people are like this and brown people are like this and white people are like this and so on and so forth, which is essentializing. And you also can't say, I don't see color. And that's my solution to race because to disregard race, to be quote unquote colorblind is to ignore the disparities that do happen. And so I hear you saying a very similar argument here about gender of, of we're not ignoring it. We're not being gender blind, but we're also not, using it as a deterministic factor of, well, you're women, therefore you're symbolic of all womanhood and femininity and your gender and your, is that right? Right. Like that's, that's all you get to be is a, a pawn in that argument. And, and in this film though, I guess in contrast to what you're saying with aliens, but this seems relevant that the women are the primary driver of the violence. Right, so it's not just that they are characters who are it able to- It ass all, all over those films. <laughs> but but the aliens are the threat, 
right? The scary thing. Okay. Right. But in this case, the women are the threat, but they're the threat for reasons, like I said, that don't have anything to do with their female status yet. As you're saying, their female status is not ignored throughout the film. It's acknowledged and gender dynamics are acknowledged consistently really throughout the film, but that's not what the women represent. I see what you're saying. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think reflecting on my experience watching the film, there was a background kind of on the back burner as I was watching. I felt that I felt that difference in how gender was being treated in the film, but I definitely did not sort it out in a way that, that I could articulate as you've done here. And I appreciate that you, you sorted through and, and saw that that was a, that that was a, a piece or that was a, a distinct, even unique feature of the film because I, I didn't, I, I think I was distracted, which is odd because usually I'm all about the gender, right? But I think I was distracted by the, by the religion and the satanic, whatever. I don't know what, I don't really have an excuse or justification, but yeah, I appreciate that. That's really interesting. My only qualm or my only uh, question that remains is how do we resolve then the fact that the preacher gets to survive and still does get to use the daughter as the scapegoat. I think because in the view of the film, he is a villain and we have Beverly in the final scene talking to the guy at the counter. And she says, you know, don't believe everything you think like she's critical of him. So I think the film, the film itself characterizes him as, as a problem. He's not a winner. I mean, he may be a winner in the storyline, but he's not a winner in the eyes of the audience. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Great. Solid retort. And I'm going to have to qualify. That's not my last question is my next question. I won't say last again in, in fear that that comes back to bite me again. What about stepmom? What about stepmom? She, I guess my, my, <laughs> my knee jerk reaction is to say she's like collateral damage. Um, but, but I don't want to be that, <laughs> you know, flip about it and you know that's not gonna fly with me you don't get to present this master theory and then just disregard the only other woman character (laughs) i i my the only the only slight caveat i'll give to this master theory is that i i do think a lot of it was unintentional i could be wrong my gut just tells me that a lot of what we're talking about here was not like explicitly on the plate of the people doing the film, which almost makes it cooler because it might just be a reflection again of an art form that's at a place with an audience is at a place where this can happen. Like I said, women can be actual people and that's not strikingly abnormal. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> right. It can fly on a film on Netflix that people will watch at six o'clock and be like, eh, that was all right. And then turn it off. Like That's amazing. I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. What was your question? <laughs> oh, the question is, uh, what's the story <laughs> with mom? So stepmom, Susan, stepmom, doesn't live there anymore, is drug-addled, and is getting their passport and cocaine to flee the country or leave the country, or... And so she's outside the family system because she's step. And clearly, she's not connected to preacher dad anymore. 
and she's not connected to daughter because they obviously don't get along or it's established that they don't get along and is there to to get her her coke and her her money and presumably leave or would have left except she hears whatever happening and i mean that's all we know about her right i'm tempted to say she's a plot device to get the cops there true but i i I just i don't like and you know this i don't like this tidy neat little package that you've wrapped up and then you know it's like you leave the batteries out of the toy that you just wrapped up in this beautiful package that's supposed to be in there too yes but again if it's not intentional maybe maybe and i'm not saying for sure it wasn't i'd like to talk to the people who made the film and see if we're onto something here or not but if it's not intentional it may not matter she might not have to fall into the the story i mean i guess all she would have to really fit into she's not the one enacting violence so she's not she doesn't play into that argument so much her piece would be i guess in the overall overall gender dynamics that the film presents i think the film tried to make a point of pointing out when men were being problematic and it also took opportunities to elevate women it does or does it maybe i'll say it that way does it extend the like sin equals death does it extend the sin equals death pattern we have going here the girls but we don't have a sin equals death. i was just thinking because they make such a big deal out of her coke her cocaine use the girls the girls the women i don't know the women smoke and drink that's pretty much it and the guys are smoking weed and also smoke and drink and they their sin is used against them we don't really have a sin as death because not everybody who we, we don't have a direct correlation between those who sin in the terms of drug use of like a classic slasher formulation because not everybody who does drugs ends up killed and not everybody who doesn't survives What's her name? Uh, yes, Beverly is the most hesitant to drink and is the most hesitant to, to use drugs. The other kid, Mark, he drinks because he ends up drugged also. I was just trying to think if, if she... I was just trying to think because that was one of the only character features we, we got from her. If there was some avenue there, there was some symbolism there. I agree with you that... that it was, I agree with you that it was a plot device that got her or got the cops there. And oh, the other thought I had was when I heard you say maybe she's just collateral damage, I heard you say her being collateral, collateral damage in the terms of a plot device, but maybe she is collateral damage ideologically too in that once in that being outside the family but still but still relying on the ill-gotten gains and the hypocrisy of what the family was doing i'm sorry okay one more let me back up one more time i was trying to think if if we see the 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 three guys as innocents 
who are being killed. They're not great people, but they're also like, they don't really deserve to die. And so, and then my question was, well, is stepmom also innocent? Oh, that's a great question. I love that. And that does ring right back to red state for me because it was the same situation with the, the boys in red state that they were innocent in the sense that they didn't deserve to die. And the, the villain in red state, just like the villain here, strangely, I mean, I say strangely because that's not common and it's interesting that we saw two films very close together where that was the villain, but the, absolutely the villain in the film is the religious institution. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a tragedy that the boys die in this film. They're innocent from the viewpoint of the film, I'm not saying they're perfect, yeah. but they're innocent enough. And it does, again, uh, I would say represent a societal shift away from say like 80s slasher films, whereby in order to kill someone, they don't have to, like someone can be an innocent and still drink or smoke or engage in sexual behavior. Like that's different. So that's again, a, an interesting reflection of society that that's what can an innocent be now compared to then uh, is a good question. And so I like your, I like your question of, is she an innocent-ish? I mean, she, so she does. She does some drugs. She she divorced dad. If anything, that's or dad divorced her. If anything, that's a credit for her. <laughs> uh, I think she is an innocent. I'm tempted to agree. I'm tempted to agree, and again, say that's cool that innocence can be flawed more so in this film, and this film can still be popular and it can still resonate with people. Shows so a, does that. Hear me out. Maybe that feeds into your argument even more so because what it provides us with is a, it provides us with a woman who is an innocent who also ends up killed, which disrupts the, the binary gender. Only men are targeted and killed as a, as a, as collateral damage in this drama that is happening between Alexis and her father. Really? I mean, that's really the core Right, and like, do you see what I'm saying? It, it, it might be easier to float the argument that this really de- gender still is the primary salient issue, if we didn't also have a example of a of a woman who ends up being sacrificed at the uh, at the expense of the the primary the religious, which is the primary conflict. I like that. And I was, what I was thinking was like the exact sort of converse, but the exact same idea that you laid out there, which was that maybe she, her character could easily have been a man as well. Like what she did, what she accomplished for the film was not based on her gender. So maybe it's another example of a female character getting to be something else, getting to be a plot device, <laughs> getting to be yeah. someone who got the cops there without her having to represent femaleness, which so- is, like I said, the converse of exactly what you just said. Okay, so then my little mental game is what if the cop had been a woman and the stepmom had been, you know, family friend or preacher's brother or her older brother or whoever, some sort of uh, man in their lives who stopped by the house for a million, whatever. She went for Coke and her passport, but you get a million reasons, right? Oh, I came to water the plants or, you know, whatever, right? Because if our theory holds, or if your theory, I shouldn't take credit for that, it's not mine. If your theory holds, we should be able to exchange them and the film would not be substantively changed. Is that accurate? I I guess maybe it, it doesn't mean probably that everyone's gender has to be interchangeable, but just that 
the women in the film are allowed to represent something other than their status as a woman. So like, again, stepmom could be a plot device and it doesn't necessarily have to matter that she's a woman. The female characters, even in a film that's acknowledging patriarchy, can represent religion without having to be primarily representing women. I wouldn't want to switch the gender of the cop only because of that scene. I think the cop getting killed because he hesitates when the men come out of the room and say the women are attacking them is a good feature of the film. I think it would, I think it would hurt the, the sort of backstory that's going on here that it does appear to be about gender if that wasn't there. That was the biggest thing that made me think that this, there was an intentional nod to gender issues. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say the biggest because obviously they're, you know, the fact that Beverly helps Mark out at the end and they're, they seem to be making a real effort to turn the tables gender-wise from what you might stereotypically expect. But I think that's a, a notable point in the film. Yeah, I agree. And now I'm thinking about when uh, I think it's Mark and Kovacs get themselves out of the pantry and they slice up, they cut whoever the fuck and they cut Bev, they cut Beverly, but it's not a mortal wound. But that also is a, is an atypical expression of that where, I mean, how many thousand horror movies does some guy get shot and cut and this and that and can still muscle it out and some girl or some woman gets a sprained ankle and is just incapacitated or gets some minor wound and then just can't carry on and and she gets stabbed and it's just like well that sucked you know but we need to keep i need to keep moving forward and like you said and then i'm gonna save save the the kid who's mark who's who's worse or whatnot so that's interesting piece there too i like that i'm glad you brought that up because yeah i think you're exactly right and it definitely all of this makes me think that their attention to gender was not unintentional like they really did pay attention to that and address that in the film but in such an interesting way by not making that what what drove the villain villainry (laughs) in the film and I would just like to lay this out quickly. You can cut this if it's not helpful, but it's like we have rape revenge films where women enact violence on men. And it, I guess that's the most prominent example I can think of. They enact violence on men because the men did something terrible and deserve it. And the women are representatives of their gender fighting back against men as representatives of their gender. And then we have something like audition where the overall landscape of the film is clearly about gender inequality, but the women enacts violence against the man for reasons probably related to gender. But in this particular scenario, the man doesn't deserve it. We actually empathize with the man and we see the woman as a villain. And we read that as a problem, you know, because there the woman is being a villain in a case in an argument where she shouldn't be seen as the problem. She's being seen as the problem. And here we have like this whole new creature where a woman enacts violence on a man in a landscape of gender inequality, but she's actually not doing it because she's a woman and he's a man and she's fighting for that cause. She's fighting for some totally other cause. That's cool. So that is cool. I kudos to you for sorting that all out. And then my next thought is, okay, awesome. Does that make this film an effective critique of religion, particularly the organized prosperity gospel preacher i need your money because jesus religion the quick answer i want to give you is i'm thinking of 
what was it? Teeth? Was it teeth? The vagina dentata that was yeah, yeah. teeth yeah. with the brother in teeth and how he was bad and he was bad and we knew he was bad because he was dark and he had heavy metal posters on his wall and he liked anal sex or whatever his, he had pornography also, yeah. right? And that was enough to make him bad given the, the, the ways that, that bad is fostered in horror films and how problematic and non-substantial they can be to at least raise up religion, you know, and particularly this type of religion as a problem and let that be bad seems like an accomplishment. I mean, I know it's not, it wasn't a super nuanced argument, but cool to, you know, to not have it be anal sex and smoking and whatever it is that makes someone the villain, but actually have it be something that is societally problematic. Cool. And end your film with the point of your, your survivor and your lead, your lead protagonist explicitly saying to somebody like, Hey, don't believe everything you, you hear. Like that's bullshit about that type of religious institution. And also ending it in a sort of depressing way where the preacher gets to, he gets to survive, like you said. But I think that makes a better point because you as an audience member don't like that. And so you get to be really upset with him at the end. I mean, I think that's cool. I think it's a pretty, it's a heck of a lot better than heavy metal posters and dark skin or whatever. I think it is too. And I think that might be more indication that there's some intentionality behind this because of the history, both in horror as the genre and in society as the response to horror of the genre of associating heavy metal with Satanism and with evil and moral corruption. And they've turned that inside out to say, here's a situation where the supposedly moral organization of the church has co-opted the heavy metal and the youthful whatever like you said drugs and kind of partying and and all of that and that was that's all just being used by the church to stoke these to stoke these fears as essentially a uh, a motivating factor to push people to the church oh yeah i love that yeah, I love that. So it's like the exact opposite. It's like what traditionally would be held up as good is held up as bad. And what traditionally would be held up as bad is actually those characteristics are given to people that are called good so that we can really flip that. That's cool. And right. And we and then we know, like you said, by the end of the film where the, the preacher is, is still out there claiming, scapegoating his daughter and, oh, I, I am still the upstanding person i mean that's the one that's the interesting thing though is is like we get to know that uh sorry i just uh uh, my my brain just jumped around there let me finish that thought first let me try to uh so the preacher is still out there so the folks in the film other than our surviving heroes don't know that the preacher is the evil is is really the culprit behind all of this. But we as an audience know that he is. And we get to see the shopkeeper who before was pegged as a, uh, as someone who was identified as someone who believed in the preacher and that the preacher was the, the good person and is now being told you should not believe what you see. So... Hundred percent. I think yes. I think we as we as the film have decided that he's wrong, 
and we hate the fact that the preacher is getting away with it. And we, we a hundred percent agree with Bev when she says, don't believe that. And so I think in the world of the film, that argument completely succeeded. It doesn't matter if everybody in the film knows it because we hate that they don't. It bothers us, right? And we also, that the shopkeeper was held up as a problem earlier as well. And so he's like a representative of the problem, just like the preacher is. And it, it irritates us <laughs> as an audience that the film ends with them still not getting it. And that in a lot of ways might be more effective than, you know, everybody in the film suddenly deciding like, oh, we all suddenly see the light. Like, no, that's not the world we live in. It's like, this is a problem. We're highlighting it as a pervasive problem. And so I think that's probably the best way to do it. There's, I think there's no ambiguity about how the audience feels at the end of the film. Absolutely. And I do agree with you that it, at least in this case, I don't know what an ineffective version of it would look like necessarily, but in this case, I think it is a very effective critique of, well, of the media and religion. I, or is a very, in particular, it's a very ineffective or effective critique of religion by exposing this pastor for being the fraud that he is and telling us, or like you said, leaving the audience with the frustration of knowing that and, and, and knowing that he's getting away with it and that being a source of, of anger or frustration on us as an audience. I wonder if there isn't one other, or if there's another piece there where these other patriarchal institutions were ineffective at addressing the corruption or the 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 negative impact of the church. Oh, I like media hasn't. Yeah, please go ahead. Which no, just that could sort of explain the scene with the cops, right? Because the policeman is enmeshed in this cultural antiquated cultural ideology that the men have to be the problem or you know that the things can't go the way that he sees it he's blind to what's actually happening like he can't see it because he's stuck in that mindset and that's what makes him ineffective that's cool i mean that sounds like exactly what you were just saying there yeah and and the media is ineffective because they're there letting him letting the preacher speak about how terrible his daughter is and how much of a victim he is that she did all this or whatever so the cops, the police are ineffective as an institution. The media are ineffective as an institution. Culture, in terms of music, I'm sorry, ineffective as, in a, as an institution to see the problems within the institution of religion and combat them effectively. The family is not because I guess if the family were effective, stepmom would have come back and helped Alexis <laughs> Or said, hey, leave with me or whatever, something, right? Which also helps explain her maybe a little bit more. I guess nothing is really effective at constraining him because he gets out. I was trying to think about, so culture is what brought this all together. So is there a way to read this as though like, oh, well, heavy metal music is the problem because it got all these people together and look at all this happened and we ended up, more or less back at square one where, where the preacher is going to get probably more donations out of this because he can go on TV and ask for pity and claim his moral righteousness. And I do have to say we're back to that heterosexual imaginary of our real success in the film is that girl and boy get to be together and go off to California to do whatever they're going to do. <laughs> Okay, that's I, I true. Just, but were they I, if, romantically, was there anything between them? Because I, I thought, you know, you couldn't, they didn't play that up, certainly. 
Uh, I mean, I felt like there was some googly eyes, but you're right. They didn't ever, there was no, I will, I absolutely will give you credit on this. There was no final kiss. There was no, oh, we got out of this. Here we are in the car. Let's kiss and ride off into the sunset. And that you're absolutely right. I, I totally got to give the movie credit for that because that would have been the absolute standard expected move to do is well obviously these two are now gonna maybe maybe that's how ingrained it is in me that i see these two at the end and i'm like well of course they're now a couple because what else could they possibly be in a hollywood movie <laughs> well i was it's funny because i was thinking the exact same thing when i was watching the film the, the first thought that came to mind was wait were they at the beginning when they were kind of pairing up a little bit the girls and the boys did these two pair up together were they sort of into each other or was it like different who was into who because i wanted to know if they were going to run off to california and get married or not and and then i was critiquing myself for that same thought and thinking they really didn't i don't know they, they didn't give us an indication i really don't think they did they, i was looking did. for it because it was still in my head but I, I don't know that they gave us an indication that they were a couple so much as they but they had their extra little flirty bond. It was as low key as it pro- as it probably ever is in these kind of films. But there's something early on where they're meeting, where they they're talking to each other at the very beginning in their in the van or at the van in the parking lot, and Alexis says something not quite right, and what's his name Mark and Bev share some little tidbit of knowledge. And he like says something about her Iron Maiden jacket. And then he gives her his jacket when he spills, he runs into her and spills. And Ivan and Val pair up because she's he's who she goes sits on the lap with. And, um, or maybe that was Kovacs. And then Alexis, th- there was a pairing there. Oh, so this was, I didn't were, know if it was in line with the pairing. It was... It was. Okay. But but again, I to its credit, in terms of how blatant and unnecessarily exaggerated all of those things often are, particularly in these kinds of films, this was as as restrained as as anything. Yeah. I'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you brought all this to the table, Laura. I, 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 this is, uh, yeah, this is totally worth, worth a podcast episode. I stand corrected on, on if I would have picked the film. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I had the same, like this trajectory of thought over the course of the film. I felt similarly about it to what you did. And honestly, even when the podcast started, I agreed with you on, on the general take on like the film itself. Like, eh, it was all right. But I, it raised all these interesting issues for me. But the more we've talked through it, the more I'm starting to think there is a consistent, cohesive intention behind some of this. And I think I'd, I'd like to retract some of my earlier statements about, oh, I think it was just totally unintentional. I don't know if they intended quite as much as we're pulling out, but they very well may have. And at a minimum, like I said, even if it wasn't intentional, it reflects an interesting state of society that this type of film, if it was just some, eh, it's okay for six o'clock, whatever, it's going to be popular on Netflix and people might watch it kind of film that really didn't have intentionality behind how it was done, which now I don't think is the case. But let's just say it was. Even the fact that that can fly with all of these 
points going in it and different representations of people. That's cool. That's just a cool state of the art form at the moment. And if it was intentional, which I, I now believe more so that it was now that we've talked, that's cool too. Agreed. Agreed. Well, one, we should, we got to remember we should grade the film. Shoot, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, that's what I was going to say. It's the opposite of Summer of 84. <laughs> You're totally right. <laughs> yes. It's oh, like it's worth it for mood. that. It's the same <laughs> initial reaction, but instead of the more we look at it, the worse it gets. The more we look at it, the better it gets. You're totally right. And it's even the inverse in the sense that Summer of 84 was just really entertaining. Like I left it and thought, oh, I totally would recommend this to people. Like I just thoroughly enjoyed the experience. And this, I had more of a different reaction. I didn't dislike it, but it just felt like, yeah, it's all right. Something to do for a couple hours, you know? And the more we talk about it, the more I'm feeling like, wow, this was actually, like I'm really glad we saw it. But right after seeing it, I don't know if I would have said that. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. I just, I wouldn't say like with summer of 84, I left like, wow, that was cool. And then kind of changed my mind. And with this, I left like, eh, all right. And now I'm changing my mind. So it's different. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm glad I remember that because it's, it's, I think it's pretty spot on. <laughs> absolutely. Um, all right. Here's our thing. You, you've led the charge here. Do you want to, do you want to grade it first? Oh gosh, I'm struggling with grading it because now that we've had our conversation, I feel like it's solidly got to land in the A range. I mean, it did so many things that I can't think of another example of a film doing. And my big hang up is that I'm hung up by the fact that my initial take on it was, I don't think the people really intended to do this. And it was only mildly entertaining and it was, eh, it was fine, but whatever. And I'm trying to reconcile those two, those two in my head. Um, see, I think actually going through the rubric would be really helpful this time. Before you do that, I want to remind you, or I don't know how you say it, that the same dynamic was a point of, was a relevant point in our discussion of funny games because you, you emphasized that because initially when you watched it and when, um, you know, and, and folks like Patrick and Chris who are, our thoughtful folks watched it that critique wasn't prominent enough to necessarily sort out after the first viewing. It was only after discussion or, or a secondary viewing that, that the, the critiques in the film were able to emerge is, uh, I mean, the two films couldn't be more different, <laughs> but uh, I just want, I just, again, cause I was, I'm literally was just editing that earlier today and, and that's part of what we were talking about was what does that mean for our evaluation of the film if the critique is either too subtle or too, for lack of a better word, or is too highbrow or intellectual to be apparent to folks that are, that are watching. I suppose the difference for me would be that for funny games, it's so intellectual that it might be off-putting or alienating for for folks and it also definitely it's different because i think it's a really the joy of funny games is really an intellectual joy and this there is some real experiential viewer joy of just like oh this is a fun movie so i just again I, that's where i'm at so i thought it'd be might be interesting to to just say that as i we're like moving forward here i like what you said there and i also think that 
in this case, it's not an intellectual argument that they're making, or I guess I'll say, even though we've like intellectualized it and been discussing it in those terms, I would almost say that what they're doing doesn't need to be discussed intellectually. And you don't even need to notice the argument because they're just contributing to a cultural landscape where they're challenging standard stereotypical problematic dynamics and they're just doing it and letting that fly in their film. And as a viewer, you don't, I don't think you have to sit down and say, what does this say about gender relations or what does this say about the institution of religion? But it's still creeping in, right? Just the same way that there's a temptation in, in probably everyone who views the horror genre to watch teeth and see the brother and recognize that he's going to be a villain because he's got anal sex on his wall or whatever. Sorry, I can't stop overusing that example, but it just stands out so much to me as a good example that those, that messaging gets in your brain and it impacts you. Right. And so by just putting out messaging that counteracts those stereotypes, they're doing a service and it doesn't matter if you notice, like, I don't think it matters if you really think about it because it's still getting in as a viewer, you're now used to seeing female characters that represent something other than just their, their gender status. You're used to seeing women be in charge in a situation where they're paired up with a man. You're used to seeing the villain be, you know, an institution that is often held up as, as admirable. So it like helps you question that idea. And you see innocence, as you've pointed out, that have, I won't even say like moral failings, right? But what what would have been maybe more traditionally considered moral failings, and you see that as okay. So just doing that, I think, is is a service to society, whether it's whether someone watching it would would see the argument or not, they they still got the messaging. It's still it's still in there. It's still challenging those tropes. And next time they see one of those tropes, it might not be quite so seem so self-evident. It makes me think of there being this balance where something like funny games, I mean, that's foremost in my mind because that's what I've been working through producing and editing. But there's a risk with funny games of people watching it and not getting the commentary and then not suggesting it to other people either because they didn't like or enjoy the viewing experience and or they really didn't get the critique overtly and that limiting the distribution or or the spread of the critique. There's another risk where, like you said, as you were talking through that, my thought was, well, if we hadn't have done this, and like you said, at the end, it's just like, oh, well, that was a fun six o'clock distraction, diversion, entertainment film. Does that also risk, well, then you wouldn't have recommended it to, to other people. And it wouldn't have been a, you end up on that same risk of like, oh yeah, that was fine. But it's not just like I came into the film, the podcast with like, that's not the film I would have chosen. I would have chosen this to suggest and recommend and discuss. So you see what I'm saying? There's a balance there where there's like a sweet spot of, of not being, there's just a balance between what are, and are you comfortable with me? I think this is a wonderful addition to the rubric. Are you cool with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Accessibility of the critique and the commentary. Yeah, for sure. And then so uh, the, the, the entertainment connects to that because the risk with like funny games is it's basically uh, miserable to watch maybe. And for folks who aren't interested in geeking out about a film for however many hours and rewatching it in order to get some intellectual joy out of it, no judgment there. Um, <laughs> they may not suggest it to other folks. 
but there's another thing where I don't know if I'm articulating anything particularly well. Maybe you, do you kind of get where I'm going? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking that if had this criteria been in our rubric, it would have given me a place to knock down in fabric a little bit because yeah. I wanted to for the viewing experience, but at the same time didn't for the argument that they made because I felt like that held water. So yeah, I think that's great. I think whether it's actually an enjoyable experience and I, I don't know, how do you, how do you characterize enjoyable, right? That's going to be everybody's own personal opinion on that. But I think, I think we can weigh in at least. And enjoyable maybe isn't, I think entertainment's actually a better word than enjoyable, but anyway. I mean, this is why we call it the evolving rubric is so that we can evolve it. For me, this is exciting to get to add something here because I think it's a wonderful addition such that folks would recommend or rewatch. Yeah, or the message is like able to have a a wider impact. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, Something about, or maybe there's something about balancing subtlety. I think we should grade it while we're still on this film and not not weighing too heavily into the exact verbiage of the rubric and just say that that sort of separate, but I like the point that you're making. I think that holds. Um, And this is an interesting film to just honestly go through the rubric with. Scroll back up to the top there because it was, it was, this was fun when I was viewing this and thinking about this film. So social responsibility, the real extent of the issue depicted very real. And by issue there, I'm, I'm largely referring to sort of the insidious nature of, religion as an institution that can cover up a lot of social harm and because people believe that it's moral or because the, the figureheads for that type of organization can be perceived as infallible. So I think that's a, a really good issue to address. And the historical moral panic of music and Satanism and youth culture being this corrupted, corrupting, terrible force. And to your credit, Laura, which is a, uh, crucial to what you brought in here of the real the reality of the horror and the issue depicted this is exceptional in that it challenges some of these very ingrained gender notions that are often reaffirmed in these films and those gender expectations and and set gender roles are are very detrimental to us as a culture yeah 100 percent And with whom do we empathize and who is stigmatized? I'll just answer that by saying exactly the right people throughout the entire film. I think we are totally on on target with that. I mean, up to the last moment of the film. Representation, diversity. Uh, We don't have racial diversity. I think they dealt with gender diversity very well, but they didn't really deal with racial diversity well at all. And it's all hetero. Mm -hmm. Right, yes. Trends in character te- casting and the Bechdel test. I think they, I mean, they passed the Bechdel test with flying colors. At the first part of the film, they didn't. And that almost, for me, that made it a better experience because just as I led this podcast with, I was so caught up in my kind of history of having played into the same culture and how, how just patriarchal it was and how depressing that was to watch. That really made the rest of the film more effective. So I think that was great. Um, agentic versus passive characters. Again, along gender lines, they did a great job of that. Um, and lack of or omitting problematic tropes, again, along gender lines, killer job. Could have done better in different levels of representation. Also, though, I don't expect a film to tackle everything all at once. So, And they, they not only omitted problematic tropes, but they challenged. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and subverted uh, absolutely. Uh, problematic tropes as well. And so our ratio of, of 
horror to commentary. I mean, in terms of like gratuitous nudity or gore or anything like that, not a problem at all. Emotional experience of the film. Were we scared? No. And, and I, I don't think we were, but I think we were angry when we were supposed to be. We were irritated when we were supposed to be. That's good. And I think we were directed to, there, there was some tension. I think if I weren't the disillusioned <laughs> the horror watcher that I am or the uh, desensitized horror viewer watcher, there were some moments where like, I knew like you are telling me that this is a point of tension where there is some scariness here. I wasn't really that it didn't, didn't necessarily work for me particularly well, but the pieces were there and it was done fine. It just wasn't, it just didn't do a lot for me. So yeah, just throwing that in there. Yeah, I agree. And then in, in terms in the of sense, I'm sorry. So what, the next thing is, is what purpose does that fear serve? So I really only say that to say that I can, by being able to identify where the fear and the tension was supposed to be, it was still clear enough to direct our empathy and, and our understanding of, like you said, it was all well done of, we know who is supposed to be the aggressor and who's the villain and who's the, the casualty and so on and so forth. That's all. I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of accessibility, I think it's, it's great. It's fine. I mean, it's popular on Netflix right now. It was fun to watch. And I, I really do think the argument I was making earlier that the, the main impact it was meant to have was not so much an intellectual impact as a changing the cultural landscape impact. Like you didn't have to notice it as a, I don't think you had to notice what it was doing as a viewer to still have it have its impact on you, which is great. So I'm going to say, I think it passes in that regard. And technically speaking, yeah, it was, it was good. I would like it to have been a bit more, um, I guess, entertaining something. I would like it to have had another hook that kept me in because I feel like the actual plot, like just watching it outside of all of this representation stuff that was going on, it was fine. I think it could have been tighter. It could have been more compelling. It could have been something where somebody would leave and be like, wow, that was a great movie. You have to watch that. And it wasn't that, but still, I mean, it did a great job on a lot of these marks. And in many cases, I mean, much better than a lot of things we've seen. I agree with you. And tighter is exactly the word. And I, that I would use as well. And I think some of that tightening could have, or I don't know if it would have been uh, transformed to the level of what you're talking about, about leaving and being like, Oh my goodness, you have to see that film. But I think it definitely could have been improved notably just with editing, just with the technical tightening of what really is to keep the pacing a little bit more controlled and, and really frantic when it needed to be. And there were moments where it felt like things were supposed to be high. Oh, they're trapped in the closet and they're doing this. But, but the technical didn't, didn't reflect that in ways where there weren't, I'm the first to criticize unnecessary crazy cuts and camera angles, but I think you actually could have put some more in here to reflect and emphasize there's urgency here. They're trapped and the they're wounded and she's trying to figure this out and they're trying to decide if they're actually going to kill these guys and do some technical bits to reinforce that in the, in the narrative. Totally agree with you. And I, I'm loving this addition that you put into the rubric of the accessibility of the critique and the commentary and sort of the entertainment value of the film, because 
I'm going to give it an A minus on those grounds. I'm going to say it, it did wonderfully on everything else for the most part, right? Or, and certainly wonderfully in comparison to the genre that it's in and what we're often, what we're often kind of dealing with. <laughs> but A minus just for the fact that if it had been a better movie entertainment wise, and it wasn't bad, but if it had been better, it could have been, it could have been amazing. And that, that's what, it's funny, what needed to be cleaned up is not any of the ideology or the points or the, the sort of meat of what they're doing. I think what needed to be cleaned up was actually the sort of less important, if you want to call it that, parts of just how fun a film it was to watch. I agree with you. And I think just for anybody who might be listening that we say these things because we want this kind of film to be amazing. Sometimes as our whole knives and skin thing played out, maybe there were times when we were just talking to each other, including myself, and we weren't necessarily thinking about what, how that would be received by a filmmaker. But if you are someone on that side of it, we're saying these things, just like you said, Laura, because we, we see, just like grading a paper, you see that this could be amazing. They're just these, these things that you could do. And, and we're saying these in a, in a positive, constructive criticism of, we want you to make an amazing film you made a great film. Here's our thoughts of maybe you could take it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they just, they did spectacularly in terms of social responsibility and in terms of entertainment, it was, it was good. It was fine. It was, but it wasn't stellar on those marks. You know, it led both of us to walk into this podcast saying like, yeah, I mean, it was all right. Yeah, sure. Right. I enjoyed watching it. I certainly, I didn't want to turn it off. I like, I liked it. I wanted to see yeah, it, but I wasn't like, oh, wow, I've got to tell people to watch this. And so that's right. the only criteria, I guess, that, that I'm critiquing here, which is really saying something because what this rubric is designed to get at is not so much that it's much more the meat of like, what are you contributing to culture? And on those grounds, you know, this is great, really great. Yes. In adding emotional experience of the film and accessibility to the critique and factoring in the entertainment, a lot of what we have focused on, particularly probably because we're academics, is the ideology and the representation, all these other factors. But increasingly, I think what we're acknowledging and we're reconciling is you can't separate that from the entertainment of it and the, the appeal and the experience of watching it at a, at a non-intellectual level, whatever, you, how, whatever the word is for that. And I think that's great. I think it's a credit to the fact that we're improving this still however many years later we're still figuring this out to me that means that that this is um robust and and uh outstanding in in many ways it's not assassination nation right that's the point of comparison again also in tone and critique but we left that film like let's go tear shit down or we're really excited to challenge the patriarchy or whatever we were. And let's tell people this is a great movie. And, and you're right, this film, we didn't, neither of us left feeling that. And it, it probably could have been, or it might've been able, it could have been closer. For sure. Be cool too. I think you're, you're having a, probably a, a good imp- influence on me, Laura, but it's kind of funny because I, I think of it, I kind of want to tease you about you making me soft. Um, um, How many like years is it taking? <laughs> You're as stubborn as I am. <laughs> it took me three years to convince you just to let me record things as a podcast. <laughs> In my defense, yes, I'm 
a tough one. I'm a tough nut to crack too. What I was going to say is this, this is the film that makes me think of your point. I don't know what it was, but where you said there are papers where there might be some other pieces that weren't necessarily a quality, but because the paper goes above and beyond and teaches you something or, or really is uh, exceptional on some other level that, that you'll still give the paper an A and then you'll write comments rather than grade the paper down. And with what your argument was about representation and transcending gender, I'm tempted to take that approach with grading this film because like you said, it's, it's a, it's a film that has no or very, very few comparable examples in that regard so I'm torn between giving it like the high A minus or the low A. And I'm, that's where I say, I think you're making me soft that in this case, I'm actually inclined to give it the like 93, the like lowest score that it's an actually an A and write in these other things as a comment. I'm very torn. I don't know. I honestly was right on the line of 93. That's exactly what I was thinking okay, when so I was thinking a number. So let's, let's go for it because I'm, I'm 100% I'm with you on 93. This, okay. Okay. And this is where you're making me soft because I think however many years ago I would have been like, no, <laughs> it is getting the 92 and that's all there is to it. There, there isn't any diversity or whatever, but you've, you've convinced me that sometimes you need to reward what has been done in hopes of encouraging continued progress rather than penalizing and be sure you penalize for every bit that's missing so <laughs> and i do want to say that in terms of what's been done it really stands out i mean it really it stands out in the genre me. it's not even it's not like we're we're giving it some sort of kitty grade or something no, it's, no. i can't i can't think of a film that well, that, that would have spurred this conversation. I mean, that's why I was so excited to talk to you about it because once I started going down this road, I was like, wow, this is a really unique contribution to something we've been talking about for years and cool. And you've convinced me. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's absolutely not some sort of pity grade. It's, I find your argument convincing that it is exceptional in these regards and that is worth rewarding and acknowledging or that deserves to be rewarded and acknowledged. Absolutely, yes. All right. Good? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Awesome. This was fabulous. It's a long one. If you stuck it out with us, we, we, you must be getting something out of this, and we appreciate that. And keep coming back for more, please, and let us, let us know your thoughts. And until then, horror films are our collective nightmares. really trying to like uh, with the likes film is directed oh god i just i can't i'm tapping on stuff that i shouldn't be um i put my hands under my legs uh, and how did you ye of no free time manage to uh to come across and watch this film i hadn't hey hippo no no hippo no Good hippo. Good hippo. You listen now like such a good kitty.
Do they? Does it? Yes, mostly. Yeah. Only, I mean, he's only respects the rules on like a couple surfaces that I've really been super strict about. But yeah, he seems to. Like I say, no, and he gets down. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I feel like he had a, a bar where like he was willing to accept my authority if it was very limited. You know, when there were like lots of places he couldn't go, he's like, screw this. I'm just not going to listen to you at all. But when I dropped most of them <laughs> and then just left it at two, he's like, all right, this seems fair. <laughs> uh, I love it. Sounds very cat, very cat, uh, catish. <laughs> so what are his two things? He doesn't get to be on the counter? Yeah, the counter and the kitchen table. Oh, well, I mean, really, what else is there? Yeah, right. Well, there was like the plant shelf until I just decided that I was going to outsmart him. I was going to win this war because I'm a human and I'm way smarter than a cat. And there has to be a way I can keep him out of pots, pots that hold cacti at that. So like, he's not going to even want to eat the plants, you know, but like he was digging in the dirt around the plants. So I got some spikes that went in the dirt. (laughs) I was I was fully prepared to go like barbed wire like I was I was just gonna win this and I thought, I said that to somebody and they were like that's so mean and I thought it's not he's just gonna touch the barbed wire once and then he'll like stay out of my pots and he'll just listen you know he should have listened in the first place when I told him don't go in my pots and when I googled on Amazon barbed wire because I was absolutely prepared to buy barbed wire what came up was this little pokey plastic things for cats to keep them out of pots. And I thought, does everybody do this? Does everybody decide they're going to put barbed wire in their houseplants? Um, And so the first suggestion Google has is this. And I was a little bit disappointed because it wasn't really as dramatic as I was prepared to go, you know, to win this (laughs) battle with the cat. But I bought the little plastic spikes and it it totally worked. It took a couple revisions. I had to like put, you put the little, you know, those little metal stakes in to like hold it yeah. down, but you had to be really like, he's going to rip them out if you can. So I had to put like 45 of them in each pot to like <laughs> keep them in there. Um, but eventually I won and he would just kept trying and he's pulling them and he, for like weeks he would do that or he'd just sit next to the pot and like stare at it, just, like stare, <laughs> um, which was also amusing for me because I thought, you know, I succeeded. So now he's allowed up there because the plants have their own protection and the pot I have oh, actually made okay. something he can't get into. Yeah. So anyway, I just, you know, I had to, I had to learn on the places that I didn't want him before for like other reasons. I I found a different fix. So now he's allowed to be there, but he's not causing trouble. I don't think that's an indication uh, that everyone is doing that. I think that's a byproduct of the fact that Google knows everything you've ever bought, including acquiring a cat. So when you start looking it, that's, that's the big data algorithm honing in on she likely wants to buy something for her cat. Wow. The barbed wire version of, or the cat version of barbed wire. Wow. Well, good job in this case, I will say, because I didn't even know that was a product and it was exactly what I needed. And although it would be funnier to have barbed wire, I do appreciate the fact that, you know, when the cat got poked on these things, it was just a little plastic nubby. It wasn't really that big a deal. Oh yeah. Big data is wonderful if you want to buy cat barbed wire. (laughs) Right. Not so wonderful if you want to, promote Russian propaganda to swing an election for a right. dictator. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trade-offs, trade-offs there. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. I, okay. Wonderful. People watching it and not getting the commentary and then not suggesting it to other people either because they didn't like or enjoy the viewing experience and, or they really didn't get the critique overtly and that limiting the distribution 
or the dissemination, oh, I hate that word, or, or the spread of the critique. I don't hate dissemination because of some sort of latent homophobia. <laughs> Which nobody ever thought that, but I feel like I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I feel like I'm gonna say it anyway. Anyway, there's another risk where, like you said, and uh, overt or not overt, but I don't want to use explicit. Um, but you have a better word for me here. <laughs> I, we don't have to. I mean, we can always refine that kind of stuff, or we will refined presumably that kind of stuff was yeah. before and i was just get enough down that uh let's see i'm gonna go to the thesaurus <laughs> and head off to one of the girls's country homes and head off to one of the girls's girls's oh, christ <laughs>